Welcome to Backlogs, an arts management podcast series where we delve into the histories and evolving practice of arts management in Singapore. The world of arts management is a vast and wide-ranging one, and this podcast series is a humble attempt at beginning to map this world and chart its growth. This pilot series focuses on the management of the theatre and literary art worlds, a process that brings text to the stage or page. It also focuses on the time period of the 1980s to 1995, an exciting time for the local arts ecosystem, because of the crucial work of the arts managers in the increasing professionalisation of the arts and cultural industries. Head to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G for more information and resources. In previous episodes of Backlogs, we explored the rise of a few English-language theatre companies in the 80s, groups such as Theatre Works and The Necessary Stage. In this episode, we'll be delving into the histories of two other slightly different institutions. Firstly, the bilingual language theatre company known today as The Theatre Practice, formerly known as the Practice Performing Arts School, PPAS, and secondly, the substation, one of Singapore's oldest and well-known multidisciplinary contemporary art centres. Some of our listeners who are already familiar with these names would know that both of these iconic institutions were the brainchild of Kuo Pao Kun. He is, of course, arguably one of the most prominent and pioneering artistic visionaries of Singapore theatre. Kuo was a playwright, a theatre director, a dramatist, an arts leader, and of course, a recipient of the Cultural Medallion too. Kuo's dedication and kindling of local theatre has influenced generations of artists and practitioners. For instance, he himself taught a whole generation of directors, including action theatre's Ekachai Ekrongtam, the necessary stages Alvin Tan, Asia and Theatre Research Circus's the late Mr. William Teo, and Theatre Works Ong King Sen. Many of Kuo's works have also entered the canon of Southeast Asian literature and have been performed by international theatre companies from across the world. We also very briefly touched on some of Kuo Pao Kun's history with the substation in our conversation with Mr. Arun in episode one. And today we're delighted to be able to speak with another arts manager who has worked closely with Kuo, both at the theatre practice and at the substation. So please welcome Ms. Wong Han Juan. Thank you. Thank you, Serene. <laughs> Hi, Han Juan. Hi. I'm really excited to speak to you today. I think it's been many years since I spoke with you. Um, you've been one of these stalwarts, I think, in <laughs> arts management. I've met you in different, different contexts. Thanks. We'll obviously, uh, for the sake of our listeners, we'll go through some of those as well. I'm excited to speak to you also because I think at points in time, we're going to actually um, speak in Mandarin. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I should explain that Han Juan is very effectively bilingual. And of course, in this episode, we're looking at the Chinese theatre in Singapore. We're also looking at the substation. So I think there'll be opportunities for us to look back at the memories and 回顾回顾一下,对吗?好,好. Let me give our listeners some uh, history about Han Juan. Han Juan, you've had a prolific career as an arts manager in a number of theatre companies over the years. Can you run us through what the early years were like for you, how you began? Okay. Actually, I've always wanted to work in fields related to arts and culture. So somehow, when I went to see a performance by Theatre Practice, that time it was called Practice Theatre Ensemble. Mm, PTE. So, yes, PTE. So they did a show called Lei Yu, mm. Thunderstorm. 
It was directed by a very famous director from China. It was this play that I went and they had this leaflet where they say they're going to recruit people for the ensemble. <laughs> so there was this whole list of names, you know, like stage managers, actors and designers, blah, blah, blah. Then I saw this word, admin person, something like Xing Zhen Guan Li So I said, oh, that one I can do. <laughs> okay. Because I studied business management in, in, in business administration in university. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, this is something I can do. Mm-hmm. I wrote in to, to apply for a job. Mm-hmm. And What year was this? 1988. So I got a call from the theatre um, manager. That time was Lin Shufen. Mm-hmm. He was the manager. So I got an interview. And guess who was the one who interviewed me? Okay, let me guess. <laughs> Kuo Pao Kun himself. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Kuo Pao Kun. I was so surprised because I saw him. I read about his shows and in interviews on newspapers. So I didn't expect that he would be the one to interview me. Right. So I can't remember what we talked about. But I remember we had the interview at Summerview Walk, which was where Practice Performing Art School first what, set up mm-hmm. the, the space. Mm-hmm. So I got a job. But somehow, because the ensemble was not formally set up yet, And they were still kind of like need to raise funds. And the school was having a lot of classes and I guess it was more generating more income. So I was put under the school and I was working on uh, more admin stuff, admin matters. Mm-hmm. So you may say that was my very first arts management job. Then later on when the substation was up, again, they need stuff. What happened was actually after a year in the school, I wanted to leave. <laughs> I want to leave. But that time, the manager of Practice Performing Arts Center, Ms. Tan Bing Luan, she asked me, do I, want to, do I want to go to substation and work? Because they were also looking for staff. Because that time when I left, when I decided to leave Practice Performing Arts School, substation was in preparation stage. That's right, so because it, pre- be- it began in 1990. Correct. Right? Right? It was launched in 1990, September, if I'm not wrong. Yes. So, I think I was fortunate as well, or fated, because... They actually had a staff. They actually had the first staff of substation, a development executive. She left somehow after a few months. <laughs> so there was a vacancy. Mm. So that's why Ms. Tan asked me whether I want to be to, to work in substation. So I said, oh, why not? It's something different. So I decided to take on the job. I was first working as a program executive. Then later on, promoted to program manager. Then after two years, again, I guess I was burned out. I really yes. was burned out, I guess. So decided to leave again. And then there was a short period because they were looking for a manager. Mm-hmm. So they asked me, can I be the acting manager? So there was a short period, maybe less than a year or so. I, I was also the acting manager of Substation. Mm. Then after that, there were a few years, I was working more as a freelance arts manager. Okay, I think about three years or so. With the Substation? No, Freelance Outside. as in I was working with different companies. Sure. Yeah. Why? Because I somehow I was thinking if I had a chance to be a freelance person, I could work with different people, right. different artists, and I have a choice to work with on different projects. So that's why I decided to become a freelancer. Also at the time, freelancing was quite new concept at the time somehow. Mm-hmm. Sure. I was freelancing for a few years before I got an offer at the National Arts Council. Actually, I was also working on a contract basis with them first. Uh, on an arts festival project, one particular project. So I was working with them for a few months for that project. Then the festival director uh, or the deputy director, Chua Ai Liang, 
So she asked me whether I want to be full-time with them. Mm. So I was full-time with the fast festival, uh, Singapore Festival of Arts for uh, a few years. Then after that, I was on contractual basis also for NAC for different things, for the community arts, for silver arts, and long story. Uh, <laughs> also freelancing out here and there. So basically, my work in arts management encompasses like different kind of working uh, models. It could be part-time, it could be contractual, it could be... Actually, later on, I, I didn't really do much full-time already. Basically, contractual or part-time. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. Actually, these different models that you brought up are very real today as well. Yes, yes. I yes. think that there are a lot of young people who go in, they start out as freelancers. If they have a chance to get onto a full-time arts position, whether it's with an institution or with a theatre company, they try to do that. And then there's always a bit of flexibility going into a part-time mode or a freelance mode, as you say, to try and sample what is out there. Could you tell us maybe when you started in the 80s and the 90s, when this was a very new concept, what were some of the pressures that you faced that caused you to move into a contract situation or go freelance? What were some of the pressures that you faced? Okay, of course, the main pressure is financial position. Mm. Mm. Because when you do freelance work, your income is not uh, stable. Because your job is probably a few months and then unless you diligently look for projects. But then sometimes projects can Extend. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> so basically, it's unstable income. Yeah. That's the main reason. Of course, you do have other issues like your friends, they don't understand what is freelancing. They would think that you're being lazy. I had that experience because when I started out on freelancing, there was one day, you know, not freelancers, they can wake up anytime. I mean, not saying anytime, it's like because they don't have a structured working hours. So yes. they don't have to wake up before nine, go to work or what. So I remember what a friend called me one morning and I think it must be after 9am. <laughs> and I told her, oh, I'm eh. Then she said, oh, you know so she kind of scolded me. <laughs> like, she, you know, mm. So I feel a bit, uh, like, I do feel a bit like, yeah, and a bit upset. Like, why, why you say that to me? Mm. Also, some of the Zhangbei, like my parents also, they keep on, Wondering why am I not having a stable job? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of and course, they don't realize that you work until late at night, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, tong xiao ma, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then so you come So I think back. It's, people have this mindset that you must have a stable job, you must have stable income. Mm. I think that's a mindset that a lot of Singaporeans have. But for me, no. I do feel that how I live my life is my also my choice. Okay, I can do part-time, I can do full-time, I can be contractual. I want to just rest, also can. Mm. So I think at that time, I already have that kind of thought. Okay. And I do face face criticism from friends and, and family, my parents. And even, I even remember Professor Eddie Kuo. He was on our board. So he also asked me, mm. <laughs> A lot of doubts from people. Mm. But of course now, probably not, right? Maybe I, still. <laughs> I guess it must be the cost of living is still very high. Yeah. There's still a lot of expectation, yeah, 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 you know, in terms yeah. of career growth and yeah, all. Yeah. Correct, correct. So, yeah. Yeah. But at least people may be more understanding now. Correct. They because understand. there are more numbers, right? Yeah. They yeah. know what is freelancing about. Yeah. Mm. People can accept that now. But that time, I think a lot of people still do not, do not know what is freelancing. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. They, don't, uh, they don't agree to what you were doing that time somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting also because uh, incidentally, your own brother also works in theatre, right? Patrick Wong. Yes, he, he was yes. also with the substation as yes. a technical In fact, manager. I was the one who introduced him to the substation. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was our, our technician left. Yes. So we were looking for a technician, right? So I asked my manager, 
that time was Tina, Tina Cheng. Mm. So I asked her, what kind of qualification do you need? So she told me, oh, what, some engineering, blah, blah, blah. So I was thinking, hey, my brother is also had this education background. Then I said, just ask him lah. Mm. And that time he was actually working in some factory. So he, <laughs> oops. <laughs> so he was, he had this graveyard shift. So he worked at night, sleep in the daytime, which I think he didn't really enjoy. Mm. So I just asked him, hey, I have this job at substation. You want to try? Then he just came already. Yeah. So that's it. The rest is history. Not bad, not bad. So your network (laughs) was right next to you. (laughs) Sometimes you just feel that, you know, 真的是人生的机遇真的是很奇妙的 sometimes just think about that yeah, yeah. okay yeah. yeah so yeah so he was he became my consultant in-house consultant technical consultant every time I have technical co- question which I cannot like I can I, I'm not a technical person la. yes so if I have any technical problems I would just go home and ask him hey Patrick uh, what happened uh, if this designer want this and da 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 can we solve this so yeah, he's my in-house consultant. Yeah, but that, that, that's <laughs> wonderful, right? The fact that you can tap on his expertise as yeah. well. I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to also talk about the Chinese language theatre at that point in time. As I mentioned in previous episodes of Backlogs, we we actually covered a few English language theatre groups that emerged in the 1980s. But what was the state of Chinese language theatre at that point in time. Its history is is notably less smooth sailing, I would say, here in Singapore. It's closely tied to the state's shifting language policies over the 70s and the 80s. Chinese language theatre was actually very prominent and popular from the early 1910s to the late 1970s. It played an important role in the cultural lives of Chinese immigrants to Singapore. And in 1965, just before Singapore attained independence, the Practice Performing Arts School, PPAS, was set up by Kuo Pao Kun and his wife, the dancer Go Le Kwan. In the 1970s, the company would play to full houses with some of their productions reaching out to as many as 30,000 theatre goers. Even the PAP's Cultural Bureau would put up Chinese performances to support the party's ideology. This is a leaf from our history books. What was your relationship to Chinese theatre? Hanjuan. Because I was working at practice performing art school then, and because practice theatre on some is part of the school, so I was now and then will be asked to help out at the performances. I remember the very first show uh, that I helped out was Mama Looking for a Cat. Mm. Yeah. When I joined them, practice performing art school during 1988, yeah, they were already rehearsing. I remember I saw people like Sasi, Yang Shipin, a few of them at the studio rehearsing. Hong Yiping, Ang yes, Gepin? Yes, Gepin as well and Jian Hong as well. Yeah, if I'm not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sui Lin. New Sui Lin? One of the first cast, yes. Okay. yes. I was asked to help out at the front of house for Mama Looking for a Cat. So that was my very first, first experience at a Chinese theatre performance. Mm. So we were at Singapore Conference Hall and they actually built a three, three-sided stage with staggered seats. Yeah. So it's like my first experience doing front of house and people were asking me, I was like, oops, a bit blur. Yeah. <laughs> so you, of course, later on you understand that you really, you need to understand the show, whichever part of the work you, you are, you really need to know. For example, if I'm a front of house person, 
I really need to know what are the seeds and where are the seeds or whatever, that kind of thing. Mm. And, and anyhow, that was my first encounter. La. Right. Yeah. So I, um, before theatre practice, you did you watch any Chinese language? Oh, yes, yes, yes. When theater. I was in school, I told you just now that I watched Thunderstorm. Yes, that's yeah, right. Lei Yu. Lei Yu. But even before that, I think I, I, I did watch a couple of shows. In fact, when I was in school, I was already involved in performing arts because I was in Nanyang High School. Mm-hmm. Every year we have this national day show mm. and every class must do something. So <laughs> I remember we did Chinese dance, sing songs and what have you. Mm, yeah. And I remember I also directed a play. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so the early years really had an impact as well, right? In terms of your yeah, uh, sort cultivating... Of build up, yeah, build up some interest in the performing arts through all these activities in schools. Yes. Sure, sure. We were talking about the state's shifting language policies and in the in history books, it talks about how there's an adverse impact on Chinese language theatre. This was mainly because English was replacing mother tongues as the main language of instruction in schools. And in 1979, the government actually started a campaign to replace Chinese dialects with Mandarin as the preferred mother tongue, with the former labelled as a problematic hindrance to communication between Singaporean Chinese of different uh, dialects. This was despite Mandarin being a language with no innate connection with most Singaporean Chinese. Yeah. Additionally, the mass arrest of 1976 saw Kuo Pao Kun and his wife, Go Lei Kuan, amongst others, detained for years under suspicion of being involved in a communist plot. This meant that Chinese language theatre practitioners became less active and perhaps a little bit more cautious. Productions also became less experimental and socially engaged. So compared to the growth of English language theatre, Chinese language theatre's audience numbers dwindled and there were fewer productions. So... Hanjuan, just now you mentioned Mama looking for her cat. That was actually multilingual. multilingual. Mm. So you had Mandarin, you had Malay, you had English. Dialects. Dialects yes. as well. Yeah. Yes. Including Teochew, Cantonese yes, and correct. Hokkien. Yes. Would you say that that was a landmark production? Yes. It is a very like a breakthrough as well mm-hmm. in the theatre. Yeah. It received very good response, positive response from the audience. It's not just the language, I think, but it's also the content itself. Mm. Yeah. Um, that everyone's looking for the same cat and no matter what language you're using, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it becomes a bit of a metaphor, right? What yeah. are we searching for? Yeah. yeah. But of course, the language part, I guess, you kind of like build a gongming. Gongming mm. Empathy, shima. It's a common understanding. You can identify you with can it. Identify. You can identify. Oh, that's how we speak in, in the real, actually. Mm. We speak in jumbo language. Yeah. Yeah, that's and the then, Singapore identity, correct. right? And then I think the beautiful part about the play is about this mama and the Indian man, which is which was played by Sasi. Sasi. They actually spoke different languages. Mama was spoke, uh, speaking in, in in Hokkien, but Sasi was speaking in Tamil. Mm. And yet but they, they could can communicate. communicate. That's the wonder of yeah. it. Yeah, So I think that part also touched a lot of people's hearts. Mm. that real communication sometimes is beyond language. Mm. And theatre is exactly that, I feel sometimes. Theatre is also, it can be beyond language. You don't really have to understand the language of that theatre production, but you can feel for it. You can feel mm. if you are sensitive enough and you're open enough. Yeah. You really need an open mind. Yeah. yeah. For me, sometimes I go and see like Cantonese play. I don't really understand fully the language, but I can still appreciate. That's right. Or even opera. 
Yeah. 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 The emotions is something that is is fairly universal, and if yeah. they're able to touch you, right, they, they're able to draw you into the content as well. Correct. There was also a notable period in the 1980s, and that was the 1982 production of Little White Sailing Boat. That was part of the Singapore Festival of Arts in 1982, and it brought together 16 Chinese-language theatre companies. This was written and directed by Kuo Pao Kun, with support from veterans like Tay Bin Wee and Lo Ing Sing. The production aimed to bring the groups together with the hope that the collaboration would raise production standards and a renewed interest in Chinese-language theatre. Of course, this is because we were was talking about how there was a bit of waning, right? There's a bit of waning interest in Chinese language due to the shifting policies. So following this production, a federation was set up as a sustainable platform for collaboration and to strengthen Chinese language theatre through sharing of resources and greater interaction. Four combined performances were actually held in the 1980s. However, the younger audiences continued to shun Chinese language theatre apparently finding it quite archaic and dated, and also the, the language a bit alienating. And apparently this federation finally closed in 1996. Do you remember anything about this federation, Hanjuan, and how you know audiences were reacting to Chinese language being in the theatre? I wasn't very involved in the this few major productions by the federation, but I think I remember watching the little white Sailing boat. boat. Yeah, sailing little white sailing boat. Xiao, Xiao Bai Chuan. Yeah. It was really a, a, a quality production because you really pull in all the good talents of the Chinese theatre. So I think the audience response was also very good. So I suppose because everybody was saying that, oh, Chinese theatre is dwindling, uh, audience is dwindling because Chinese language is not... Um, uh, it's not. It, it, it's was given less emphasis, right? Was it given? I I feel like I remember this part of my life where I used to hear this song on radio. Xiao Bai Chuan. Uh, uh, Xiao Bai Chuan, of course, that is that is folk song. But also this one. Okay, okay. 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 Okay, of uh, yes, that 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 that, that, that radio era. memory. Yes, 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 correct. correct. We <laughs> yeah, all, I'm just we wondering whether not you you remember that period yes, at all. Yes, yes, mm. yes. Under the federation that we were talking about in 1986, okay, there was apparently this play called Kopitiam, and this was first directed by Kuo Pao Kun, Lin Jin Xiong, and Lim Jen Er at the Victoria Theatre. This was 6 June 1986. It was produced on behalf of 23 Chinese language drama groups, including the Singapore Amateur Players, the Singapore Ilian Dramatic Society, Live Drama Society, Quanlei Literature and Arts Association. This was one of the works that was done during the time of the Federation. In 1986, there was also the founding of the Practice Theatre Ensemble, PTE. Yeah, Hanjuan, I was just wondering if you can share with us a little bit about the history of this PTE. So it was set up in 1986, mm -hmm. correct? That's right. So it's actually under Practice Performing Arts School. PPS. So it wasn't, yeah, PBS. So it wasn't formally registered yet that time. It was mm -hmm. under the school because school, the school was running classes, dance classes, theatre classes, so I think the school make a bit a bit of money which can support the the operation of the theater ensemble. So I remember the very first the first group of professional actors 
at the ensemble, including Gepin, Ang Gepin, De Liang, Zhu Xiufeng. Zhu Xiufeng, yes. That's a Channel 8, one of the yeah, Channel 8 she became, Yeah, she became yeah. A, a TV actress. Mm -hmm. And also Lim Jen Er, who was more the director, the scriptwriter. Mm -hmm. So these were the few full-time members of right. the group at that time. And they also had a, a, a theatre manager, Lin Shufen. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, Lin Shufen was the manager, manager at, the time, at yes. the time. And there yes. were also some other members like uh, Go Guat Kian, yes. Yue Juan, correct, correct. Yeah, yeah. And Lin Tianfa. Too many names already. I, there could be some more part-time, or I will not say part-time, how to say? Yeah, part-time basis. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the part-time members that I have was Johnny Ng, Huang Jia Chiang. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah, they, they are very regular part-timers <laughs> with theatre practice. The other name that you mentioned, uh, Yang Shibin. Uh, yeah, right? Yang Shibin, correct. Yes. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, the practice theatre ensemble actually came together as a bilingual semi-professional theatre troupe. It allowed company members to train and further develop their artistic skills. In 1997, it was later renamed to the Theatre Practice. So this is the name that we now know. And the first public performance of PTE back then was a Mandarin production of Fire Raisers by Max Frisch, translated and directed by Kuo Pao Kun himself as well. Looking at the highs and lows of the 1980s and the 1990s, Chinese language theatre would then see a resurgence in the new millennium with companies such as Toy Factory and Drama Box turning full-time in 2000. And some of the names that are uh, associated with Toy Factory Theatre Ensemble at that point in time would be the current artistic director, Go Bunte, right? And I think also Chinese actor and I think he's a TV anchor now, Jeffrey Lowe. Right? They, these were some of the original ensemble members of Toy Factory. And some of the names associated with Drama Box, Si Ji He, would be Kok Heng Luan, Raymond Leong, Wang Chi Wai, set director as well as Li Shi Ju, some yes, of these yes. names as well. Han Juan, you've worked with some of these companies before as well. Yes. Yeah. Tell us in Actually, what capacities. I, I work with Toy Factory, yes. Mm. Not Drama Box. Not with Drama Box. Not with Drama Box. Yeah. Toy Factory. So I was actually working with Toy Factory on their very first musical, I Have a Date with Spring. Is that the one with Sharon Ao? Yes, that's the one that she she premiered. Okay. No, she, her debut. Her debut. Her debut on stage, yeah. Because after that, she was recruited uh, by the TV station, yeah. So they were actually celebrating the fifth anniversary, Toy Factory. So they decided to do this musical, a Mandarin musical, I Have a Date with Spring. So I was invited to be the producer of the musical. And then I remember we did open auditions. So Shen Ah was, was the last person to come for the audition. Oh, yeah, okay. It's quite drama. Was, so this anyway, your, was this your first time being a producer? Because before that, you had been a program executive, you had been the acting manager at the substation and things like that. So it looks like you went through many different roles. Correct, correct. Possible, yes, possible. As my very, very first producer job, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was quite a good experience. We actually had fun pulling all together, all the different talents, cast members to do the show. And we also went on TV to promote the show. Hmm. Yeah. And the show was actually uh, held at Drama Centre, the old one, the one the one at Fort Canning. Mm -hmm. And I remember we actually, somehow we sold out the 10 shows. Somehow. 
And then it I sounds think like you weren't expecting. We didn't to. expect really. We didn't expect that because we didn't really have like big cars with no famous cars. Because Sharon Al was not famous that time. That's yet. true. It was her okay. first time, right? Yeah. So the only person maybe well known is Chen Zhanlun, the mm. Xin Yao singer. Ken Tae. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a little bit well known like in the Xin Yao circle. I think the TV appearance to promote the show helped us a lot. Mm. Yeah. So we, we, we saw our 10 shows and then we even added one more show. Right. So a lot of people were, were like, oh, why, why this show can sell out? Right. People were puzzled why. So, And the tickets were not cheap at all. They were at $60 and $100. This was the year 1995 and it was held at the old drama, drama centre. Center, yes, right? yes. Of course, there were some slightly cheaper tickets for students. They were priced Concession, at $15, yeah. $20, $25, correct, correct, right? Correct. Interestingly, they were on sale at Ticket Charge. You don't hear that entity <laughs> anymore. And of course, you could of course walk into the substation and buy tickets, right? They tear it out from a booklet for you. Okay, okay, yeah. Substation was on the outlet, I guess. It yes, was on yes. the outlet. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yes. Correct. Yeah. Well, what do you see the numbers as a sign for Chinese theatre? How did you interpret the numbers of tickets being sold? Um, frankly, sometimes I do feel, even though we keep on saying that Chinese language is like, okay, audience for Chinese theatre is dwindling. We have been saying that, right? Mm-hmm. But then I also feel that the content, sometimes is the content. For example, why I have a date with spring can, can be a sellout because mm-hmm. it's really the content, I feel. Because it's a very happy... It's a very wenxing, it's a very warm kind of heartwarming theater show. And there are a lot of oldies, Chinese oldies inside the, in the, inside the show. And then, of course, it talks about love between the sisters, the, the, the sisterly uh, bonding between them. And then people can identify with that. Mm. Okay, mm. and of course the songs, all these old melody songs, oldies, bring back a lot of memories, good memories for the people. Mm. So that's why when people saw us on TV when we promote World Trending Yogi I think that attract people. I see, I see. Yeah. So even though we don't have big cars and but then it sell out. So I also feel that it's the content. Right, right. The other example I want to tell you is Tian Leng Jiu Hui It was also sell out. They even do, I think, three rounds. Was it three rounds? Three? Reruns. Yeah. Reruns. And they all sell out. Because of Liang Wenfu, the girl. I mean, I have to say, that is the main selling point. Mm. But also the story. It's incidentally also written by Raymond To. To, yeah. to go away. Yeah, Raymond To is the playwright for, for other people. She, you know? it, it doesn't show you very big, major. They have a lot of so then, it doesn't, in a, in a way, it doesn't force you to be, to be very uncomfortable, right? Yes, oh. yes, yes. So it's very warm and then people can relate to that. And I think people like that, yeah. You mentioned the songs that you've mentioned here. That, I suppose, makes us think about the popular culture at that point in time. And, exactly, and also. Is it not the rise of Xin Yao in yes, Singapore yes. Because in the Xin 80s? Yao, Xin Yao was very flourishing during the 80s, I think. Mm-hmm. During the 80s. So a lot of schools, students were engaged in, in Xin Yao writing songs, even from their own groups. Actually, when I asked around some of my friends, I was very surprised. They all have a group before or they write song or they sing song. So they have that part of uh, experience and become a good memory for all of them. So Xinya was, to me, it is a collective memory for a lot of Chinese language people. So I think when you go for, for example, you go to 
Tian Lung Chiu Hui Lai, this this musical. Mm. I think a lot of people go there because of the no- nostalgic feeling, the atmosphere, and the songs that bring them good memories about that that period of time when they can write their songs, express themselves. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like that, that there was some kind of parallel growth at that point in time as well that they could ride on as well. So Tian Leng Jiu Hui Lai, the English title, which some of us uh, may remember is If There Are Seasons. And suddenly that one has been rerun several times by the theatre practice. Now, just going back to 1995 again, in the same year of I Have a Date with Spring, the resurgence of Chinese theatre kind of bounced back. Especially in August 1995, there were no fewer than six Chinese language plays in that year. Wang Meilan, the assistant artistic director of PTE, attributes to the mix of new companies with young people and then also older dormant groups eager to be active once again. For example, even in the schools, Uh, This was a new thing. In Nanyang Junior College, the Chinese Society alumni staged its first performance that month. There was also a new youth drama group of the Hokkien Hui Kwan. It had its debut performance in July. And then with a more established or older group, the 22-year-old Singapore Broadway Playhouse staged The Land of the Forgotten Soul. And you had the Arts Theatre of Singapore, formerly the Singapore Amateur Players, one of Singapore's oldest Chinese drama groups, staged a children's production in September. Mr. Ko Chong Chia, chairman of the Arts Theatre of Singapore, attributes it to the booming China economy as well, bringing along a recognition of the importance of Chinese language. And therefore, that cast a bright light on Chinese theatre. This is kind of really interesting because some of the developments in the theatre practice, you know, PTE, PPAS, actually led to a resurgence and the budgeting of new groups like Toy Factory, like Drama Box, but also contemporary dance like ACNED and puppetry, the finger players, Shi Zhibang, and from the finger players, also Paper Monkey. So it's a quite an interesting time because it almost feels like that work in the late 80s and 90s that Pao Kun and uh, the theatre practice was doing kind of jump-started a bit of the interest in developing work that had a bit of a Chinese base. Yet, differences between Chinese theatre and English theatre perceived by audiences then also reflected the sold-out audience sizes. Chinese theatre perceived to be more conservative or less dynamic was unable to command a sufficiently large audience base. PTE would draw about 4,000 people a year to its productions and a popular English theatre company like, say, The Necessary Stage would expect to attract as many as, say, 10,000. So that really showed you how the language policy and the development would impact the the growth of language-streamed theatres here in Singapore. Yeah. I have a question for you, Han Juan. What were the conditions like when you started to, to work? And I'm, I'm referring to at the point that you joined. For example, in 1986, Practice Theatre Ensemble was founded. It was a bilingual semi-professional theatre troupe. This allowed the company members to train and further develop their artistic skills. And in 1988, Practice actually moved into Stanford Arts Centre under the National Arts Council's Arts Housing Scheme. So since you joined in 1988, what was your experience working from Stanford Arts Centre? What were the conditions like? (laughs) Actually, I was with a school but I will always be roped in to help with the ensemble performances. I remember they were doing this tour, There I Met the Prince. Hmm. 我要上天的那一晚, 是吗? 我要上天的那一晚. Okay, There I Met the Prince. 
which was very popular. I remember they toured to many schools. I had this vivid memory that I have to help them carry the speaker. Wow. Yes. Wow. And I cannot imagine how come, <laughs> how, how come I can... I, I, now that I re- recall, it's like, I can, now I cannot do already, of course. So yeah, I had that memory, you know, carry the speaker ourselves. So you can imagine how hard it was <laughs> that time. Yeah. We have to do... One person have to do a few things. Right. Yeah. Multitask. Yeah. But you see, I, I was officially the school staff, but I still had to go and help the ensemble. Mm. And I also remember we had to go and give out flyers at the street. Publicity, Publicity and arts yes, marketing. Yes, yes. So that's why some people cannot tahan this kind of thing. Mm. Especially if you are grad, especially you say, why am I doing this thing? You know, standing on the road and give up flyers. Yeah. In the arts community, <laughs> we have this term, Sai Kang. Sai Kang, yes. <laughs> Menial labor. Or, or yeah. well, the, the, the direct translation is uh, shitty work, right? Yeah. yeah. Then, then the other thing I can tell you is, at a time, my manager, Shu Fen, he even told me, he, he told me jokingly, but I was like, huh? He said, hmm. I was like, huh? Next month's pay, I don't know how. Yeah. The literal translation, meaning that you might not get paid the next month. Something like that. It's like, oh my God. It's like, I think he just meant to casually, it's a casual remark to me. Maybe it's just that he doesn't mean to scare me or what, I guess not. Hmm. But because I was like young and, you know, new stuff there, I was like, Mm, so you're really so like living was from tough. hand to mouth. Correct. So for the company, I mean the school running the ensemble as well, I think financially we are quite difficult. I mean, we have to raise funds all the time. And I remember we have a few board members. They were very, very kind to us. They are very supportive. Sometimes they were really like our bank like that. It's like, if we need money, I think they will just call. Mm-hmm. I mean, my manager will call them and then a check will come. Ah. Oh. Yes, we, so we the have very good. Were the we really have very good. How to say, tianshi, angels, <laughs> angels around us. Right, they are not there to be famous or what. They just support us for the sake of supporting the arts. Mm. Yeah, there were a few members, a few board members. They are like that, you see. Right. So we were quite fortunate. Okay. Yeah. So that was roughly the situation. Okay. So there's financial tr- uh, financial. Challenges. We also manpower. We always lack of, not enough manpower. So. We, like you said, saikang lah. Everybody has to do everything. <laughs> yeah, I have. I remember I have to design the fire sometimes. Design. I, I'm not a designer, okay? <laughs> Can I ask you about 1994, where love abides? You were the company's publicity manager. Is this where you had to do publicity? You had to design flyers. What, what oh, was the experience? no? I was not the publicity manager. I was freelancing. You know, as a mm. okay. When I was freelancing, I do quite a lot. I did quite a lot of work for practice at that time. Because I think they didn't have a manager. Very difficult to get manager. The manager came a f- one week, then left. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Why was it so difficult to get a manager? I think it's really because it's really a thankless job. You have to raise funds, you got to do everything. And then because short of manpower, it's really tough. It's really tough. I remember we had a manager, was it Pei Hui, Tan Pei Hui? Okay. She was probably longer. She stayed a bit longer. But if you had somebody that maybe not from an arts background, they probably can't stay too long. Mm. So yeah, I remember this guy, he came just one week and he left the job suddenly. So for quite a, for a, few, a few years or so, mm. we, they don't have a manager. Right. So I was employed to be the production manager or the producer. So a lot of, during my freelance years, I do quite a lot for practice theatre ensemble. Mm. Because at the time, Bakun was very active also. Other than the major productions, he also did he also did shows for the Arts Festival. Mm. And also that time there was this cultural 
Chinese Culture Festival by the SPH, mm. Singapore Press Holdings. So I think Park Kung was also very actively involved in, uh, with the planning of the program. Mm. So he also brought in Chinese productions like Taiping Tian Guo, Li Stan Lai. So a lot of these shows, I was doing either project management or mm. I was a producer. I see, I yeah. see. So you worked very closely with yeah. uh, Balkun at Balkun the and theatre practice. Mm. So the love by I was the producer or, or the publicity? I can't remember now. I think you were doing company's publicity at that point in time. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes I would just do publicity if they have the production team already. So I'll just do publicity. How cool. You had to do a lot of things. It sounds like the one thing that sustains a lot of the arts managers and even probably today is passion. Right. Yeah, I think it's the interest in us. And the good thing is because we kind of start from scratch because we also did, you know, all those stage management. Because I think I also did stage management before for the school production. <laughs> the school production, you know, the end of the year where all the kids went to stage to do perform. Yeah. I was also stage managing those shows. So because we learn, we, we start from scratch. So we pick up the skills along the way. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, if you are me the stage manager, stage manager show, I can do that too. Not my forte, but I can yes, do. But you can do it. Somehow so publicity, I can do also. <laughs> <laughs> Just hantam, as they say, yeah. right? Just do. So Where Love Abides or Ren Tian Yu Qing was staged in 1994. You were the company's publicity manager. It was showing for three nights, 28th to 30th October, 7.30 at the Victoria Theatre. This was about the proprietor of an old-fashioned umbrella factory and his relationship with his family and his employees. The story was about all facets of love, love between father and son, husband and wife, and lovers. And there wasn't an antagonist in the play, very much like what you described earlier on. It was the largest production since Lao Jiu from four years before that. There were 18 actors playing about 20 roles, bringing together the largest cast since Lao Jiu. In Lao Jiu, there were 27 people acting. And it was staged during the 1990s Singapore Festival of Arts. And the cast veterans included Tio Ngak Sing, Wong Yik Lui and Johnny Ng, Huang Jia Chiang, right? As well as younger ones, for example, Nelson Chia, who is, of course, today the artistic director of um, Nine Years Theatre, Jiu Nian Ju Chang. This play was written by Hong Kong playwright Raymond To. It was the second time that the company was staging a play by a Hong Konger. And one of the issues, I think, was always the shortage of scripts. It was always a problem. And Hong Kong scripts were a good source for theatre practitioners to tap at that point in time. There were some issues with props. Apparently, the play spans over three generations and a lot of the items were very, very difficult to acquire. You can just imagine the stage managers having to hunt high and low. But that was the kind of curiosity and the kind of creativity that I think stage managers would have to expend and to, to use. The design crew had to make their own paper bags and paper money, had to hire specialists to tailor clothes and make wooden chairs. The Umbrella Factory in Malaysia sponsored the production of the umbrellas needed for the play. And the production costs came up to $60,000. And that was quite average for a play at Victoria Theatre at the point in time. It involved many big-name designers, of course, such as Kuo Pao Kun as artistic director and lighting designer, his daughter, Kuo Tian Hong, as the set designer, 
While she did lighting sets and costume designs for plays such as The Silly Little Girl and The Funny Old Tree in the past, the target audience at that point in time was everyone, right? Because the theme was universal. It was hoping that those who were not competent in Mandarin would not have a problem in understanding it and and I suppose thereby, you know, being won over to continue to to keep watching um, theatre in Singapore. Taiping Tianguo or Heavenly Kingdom was another play that Han Juan mentioned. You were the project coordinator, Han Juan. Yes, <laughs> yes. About a man traveling back in time to the Taiping Revolution. Yes. Uh, 1850s to 64. Yes. Wow, going backwards. It was part of Chinese Cultural Festival, I think, by SPH. Mm. Yeah. By SPH back yeah. then. Yeah. Okay. This was performed 10th to 12th March. So it looks like a three-day run is quite common for these so-called invitations to festivals. It was held at 8pm at the ACS Independence Centre for Performing Arts at Dover Road. Ticket prices, interestingly, they seem so affordable as I'm reading it now. Tickets were $11, $21, $31, $41 was the most expensive. And these were available at the substation, Sing Yu Bookstore and Practice Theatre Ensemble. Again, this is also very interesting because where you could buy tickets from, they were not necessarily your online sources. They were actually ah, your brick yes. and mortar shops. Yes. The ones that really supported <laughs> Correct. the arts. I, I, I remember doing that too. Bringing the stack of tickets to the different outlets. Right. And you need you really need their support. I remember Tea House was one. Mm, there was. Chaguan, yes. Taoyuan Chaguan. They were very supportive. Mm. And where else? Bookstore. Yeah. Bookstore. Qingnian Shuju. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> that time, we have to do that too. You have serial numbers which serial you have number, to chop, right? Serial number, chop, yeah. Yeah. And then after that, when you sell the ticket, you need to tear carefully tear, along correct. the perforated the perfor- lines. Correct, correct. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. And then we have to draw. Uh, sorry, not draw. Oh, okay. Which are the seats are available here? You have to You have to actually highlight, highlight yeah. on the seating so arrangement. So we have to attach the, the seating plan also with the tickets. Right. We have to do that too. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now, your shogong is very good. <laughs> okay, talking about Taiping Tianguo. Yes. I remember the very first night or, or rehearsal, Li Guoxiu was, was suddenly he, he lost his voice. Oh, okay. Yeah. We all like freak out and because, oh my God, tomorrow we are going to huh? Then he just suddenly lost his voice. I think too stressed or what. Right. You know? He was a director. He was also the main person of Ping Fong Biao Ban. So immediately we have to get this Chinese sensei to come around to the backstage and help him. And then the sensei has to stand by every night to, wow. to, to support him. Did it come back, his voice? I think he came back, but of course not his perfect uh, condition. Right. I mean, so this is a little story I remember oh, about it's that great. show. It's great. Also during that show, we had this celebrity, Zheng Guo Cheng. He was such a busy person. He arrived only on the, if I'm not wrong, on the night before the show start. Right, right. But no problem, just walk him in. Yeah, he just walked in and he did his show. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I guess I want to say also a point about marketing back then, even though marketing was probably something that was a bit newer in uh, the arts, there were posters, there were flyers, there were program notes in both Chinese and English, which was a very, very big step because the idea of trying to be inclusive and to yes. kind of educate the audience, Correct. right? If, you, if they were more well-versed in one language or the other.
I would like to also speak a little bit about Mr. Kuo Pao Kun's vision. Now, of course, listening to how a lot of people refer to him, right, was always in a very respectful way, Kuo Sheng, Kuo Sheng, right? Yes, yes. Because uh, obviously he was teacher, right? He was a teacher at PPAS and so was his wife and things like that. But also this came out of a real deep respect for his beliefs and his artistic vision. In 1985, as far back as that, he had a vision of an art centre that would be accessible to all forms, artists and cultures. And this was, of course, as we now know, it, be, it came to pass as a substation. The following year, 1986, 45 Armenian Street was allocated under the arts housing scheme to the substation. We spoke in an earlier episode with Tisa Ng about this. It became the first property under the then new arts housing scheme to receive a capital grant of 1.07 million for renovations. So proposals were called. And Kopaukun's proposal was chosen as it went beyond an individual group's needs, unlike the rest who were looking for rehearsal spaces. So his vision was also for the space to be multidisciplinary and multicultural, which was a fresh concept then. Juliana Lim and Tisa Ho Ng were then Deputy Director and Assistant Director in the Ministry of Community Development's Cultural Affairs Division. They made the case to allocate the space to be managed on a 10-year lease, rather than a one three-year lease, which was the norm for the scheme at the point in time. And in 1990, the substation was opened with the slogan, A Home for the Arts. It was called The Sub, very affectionately nicknamed The Sub. It came in at a time where artists were beginning to feel the need to create their own spaces rather than relying on the government. And there was a whiff of a DIY, do-it-yourself, indie punk scene, especially in the music scene back then. One of the unique aspects of the sub was the diversity of genres in its programming. It was a key venue for the production and staging of young, experimental and contemporary works in dance, literature, music, theatre and visual arts. And I have a quote here. The substation is a home for the arts, so it should accommodate any kind of arts, traditional, contemporary, experimental and pop. So when people come to the substation, they get to meet different artists, they get to meet different kinds of arts. Isn't that good? And this quote is by Kuo Pao Kun himself. Han Juan, how was it like working with somebody who had a vision that was so kind of expansive? How did you how did you work to help him fulfill this vision? Wow. <laughs> He's really a person with, with, with great visions, mm. I feel. And he's very embracing, I really feel. In fact, in fact art, uh, the substation is really a, a centre that embraces all the arts forms, mm -hmm. experimental, contemporary, as you've just mentioned. And it can be very interesting. You walk in one weekend at the substation, maybe you will see a rock band in the garden, but then there's this opera troupe in the theatre. And then there may be a modern dance in the, in uh, practice at, at the studio, so you can, it's it, it's a very interesting kind of like, you know, mm. interaction interaction and a different kind of people, different kind of art forms. So it, it can be very exciting and stimulating. To me, it's it's really eye opening as well, I must say, because you really at the for me, even though I worked just a few years with with the substation, it really open up uh, a whole new world of what is art making, mm. especially experimental work, especially work in progress. Because these are the things that maybe not so, how to say, common at that time maybe. It's still new concept. Mm. For example, we were talking about work in progress. Bao Kun 
encourage showcasing of work in progress. Mm. Okay. Not so, so much on the end product, but what correct, is the step, correct. all the steps the, leading yes, up to correct. it. Yes, correct. Yeah, the process itself. Mm. So to me, it's, I learned really a lot and it opened up my world of art making as well. Mm. So it was also during that time that I learned to appreciate experimental art. And I learned to appreciate all kinds of music. Because at that time, I don't know whether you, you, all, you all remember, there was a long period that rock music was kind of banned in Singapore. But somehow we organized a big rock concert at the garden and it was packed, fully packed. People couldn't get into the, the garden and they were passing the chang, wei chang. Right, climbing outside. up the And I think trees wall. from the car park. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> climbing was, up the trees to watch, to a watch rock the concert. concert. Yeah. Wow. It, I can't remember, was it charged or free? But anyway, it probably is free. That's why there were so many people coming. Right. Uh, or, or even if you charge, it probably a small fee. Anyway, so it was so packed. And, but then there was, you know, when you talk about rock, people would think about chaos and noisiness or whatever. But then the crowd was very, very well behaved somehow. Mm. Yeah, there was no chaos. And basically, I feel that I really start to appreciate different kinds of music mm. and get to learn, get to know more people from the different genres as well. Mm. Yeah, I want to give some context to our listeners for what you mentioned about the rock music being banned. Many rock songs were actually banned because at that point in time, the government had a yellow culture campaign. Uh-huh. And this yellow culture actually was talking about the fear of Western foreign influence on yeah. Asian values. Yeah. Okay. So there were some attempts to, in a way, protect the indigenous audience, I yes. suppose, from that. Yes. Yes. And earlier on also, what you had mentioned about this idea of showcasing works in progress. It was a very important development in the Singapore art scene because, and I quote, in Singapore, it's always the product that's important. Yes. There should be recognition, even respect in Singapore for people who produce worthy failures than mediocre successes. I think we are too product or result-oriented. I think that the process is as important as the product. You need to have a good balance between the two. This is a quote by uh, Guo Sheng, Yes, uh, Mr. Pao Kun yes, as well. Yes. Yeah, we all know this very well by now. <laughs> <laughs> we know this very well. Um, how do you think that this actually impacts the generation of um, arts managers that came through this period of time? How did it affect the way that they supported artists after that, in terms of understanding the needs for experimentation and the need for doing works of progress? I just feel that I guess it, it encourages people or the artists to really to open up and be more creative. Oh, uh, the other thing that I think Mr. Kuo also emphasised is the multidisciplinary kind of uh, collaboration. To learn he from always, each other, right? Correct. He always encouraged that as well. To learn from each other and also you will get, we some kind of stimulation and, mm-hmm. and some kind of chemistry will, will happen. I think that's very important. So one, work in progress, uh, right. work, work, work in process. The other one is multidisciplinary collaboration. So I feel after that, I feel that more artists or even theatre companies, production companies, they will start to be more courageous, more, mm-hmm. more open to do a collaboration with different artists from different disciplines and also to be, more, to be also more ready to show their work in process works as well. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. so. 
Perhaps this also contributed to a uh, mindset of independence, right? Yes. The idea of creating, being open, being unafraid to embrace different things yes. so that it could actually lead to more creativity. Correct. And yeah. I thought maybe also because of that, more artists are willing to come up and be on their own. Mm. You mentioned that yes. Toy Factory, Kok Heng Luan Drama Box, Ad Neck and... and Shi Zhipang. Shi Zhipang, yeah, yes. The finger players. Most of them, were, actually most of them more or less were related to practice before. Yes, yes. Either trained by Mr. Kuo or even finger players, do you know that they were actually once under practice? Right. Yeah. It was only after a few years that Pao Kun encouraged them to come out on their own. So maybe you know this story better than I do. But So I learned this by reading. So the Lao Jiu, the, the ninth born, the Lao Jiu, came from this puppetry family. I, I know two of the sisters... I know. Ah, yes. Tan Bing Tian. Tan Bing Tian. Yes. And I know Tan Bing Chiak. Yes. And I believe Tan Bing Luan <laughs> yes. was the GM. GM right? of practice at that time. Yes. yes. So Bing Tian was doing the puppetry part. Mm. Bing Chiak was one of the sisters in, in, in the show. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The three, the Tan, we always call them the Tan sisters. Chen Jia Jie Mei. Chen Jia Mei. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of Lao Jiu, after Lao Jiu, which was staged at the Singapore Arts Festival, Actually, the 12 ensemble members came out from that show to begin Toy Factory Theatre Ensemble. So back to what you were saying about how Shizhi and our theatre practice actually kind of birthed a lot of these groups as well. Right, right. Yeah. In 1991, the Finger Players left the theatre practice to establish itself as a separate entity. Obviously, at that point in time, Kuo Pao Kun encouraged them to go independent so that they could apply for their own funding because... As we know, finances were always a big problem and theatre practice could not uh, support the group which had actually four full-time puppeteers at the point in time. The original members of the finger players were Tan Beng Tian, Benjamin Ho, Li Waying and Ong Kian Sin. Yes. Subsequently also, Benjamin left the finger players to begin Paper Monkey Theatre. Correct. Which is yes. also a puppetry troupe. Correct, yes. Correct. Hanjuan, I'm going to take us to a quote by um, T. Sasitaran, who succeeded Kuo Pao Kun as the AD for a substation. And he said this before, In a time where performing spaces were limited and mostly managed by the government, the substation, which was led by artists and for artists, was a tremendous leap of imagination. Do you agree with this quote? Yes, yes, of course, yes. But yet it was so difficult, right? The substation was always having to fundraise, for example. Correct, yes. <laughs> yes, you're right. So was it worth it to have an art to have an arts uh, space led by artists, for artists, and yet have to struggle with the whole fundraising aspect? I, I, I don't really think it that way. I mean, to think whether it's worth it or not, it's really part of the package, I feel. I think when you do arts, it's, it's, you just have to be prepared that it's going to be a hard life. Be- unless you do commercial arts, arts that sells very well, mm-hmm. okay? So if you're talking about you're doing theatre, even other forms of arts, you know, visual arts, literary arts, you really have to be prepared that you have to do a lot of things yourself, for example. Mm. You have to raise funds, you have to run publicity and things like that. So fundraising is always the, the number one problem for a lot of artists, mm. you know? So when I was a producer, why did they engage me as a producer? Because 
uh, 请你去帮我们找钱。<笑> so that was the first thing they would ask me to do. <笑>为什么找找你找钱呢？你是不是有很多康涛<笑> ？I think because a lot of you know leads. I, I suppose because after the years of you know experience、uh, in, in theater work and doing writing letters to, to all the foundations and banks and whatever, so you sort of accumulate a bit of experience, lah.、Like, you know, looking for money or raising funds, and then a lot of artists they don't do all this themselves, lah. In fact, they would tell you. Don't even know how to write a proposal, that kind of thing. So that is also a common problem for artists. So that is why we need us managers. Yeah. Did you feel you had to beg for money? In a way, yes, yes. So that's why there was this journalist who came to interview us or film us at the substation, and she was close to us. So once we were talking, had a little chat at the at the cafe, and we talked about my job as arts manager. So she concluded that that she said that. I think you are like you are like high class beggars. High class beggars. So I can. So that that phrase somehow become a very. I just remember it for the rest of my life like that. And I always tell people that I am a high class beggar as an arts manager. <laughs> I mean, you can look at it in a positive way. Some people will think it's it's negative, lah. But I always feel that I, I look at it. I feel that it's more like a 轻松的方式 You know, thinking my about my work, the lighter angle. I would say so. Sure, I'd like to just give a bit of information to our listeners as well about the state of funding and what was the push for having to continually fundraise. The substation at that point in time was the first collective center for the arts. It opened in September 1990. It needed four hundred and thirty thousand dollars at least a year. Okay, annually, if it wanted to continue its programs of experimental theatre, arts exhibitions, workshops, lectures, concerts, and arts markets, and to pay operating costs and salaries for nine full-time staff, so one thing's for sure: passion still has to be paid for because you have to put food on the table to pay for rent. More context. Revenue from renting out its facilities and from courses conducted was expected to bring in something like one hundred and seventy thousand dollars annually, and that would still leave the station short of two hundred and sixty thousand dollars, which it hoped to raise by attracting regular sponsors. This、um, information was taken from the Straits Times article of six December nineteen ninety. So, I'm just wondering, in the following year, nineteen ninety one, do you recall any specific fundraising、uh, projects? Ah、uh, yes, I think we had one run by is a jock some kind of jockathon. I don't know whether you knew about it. Is a jockathon thing? Walk a June is it? Was it called something like walk a jog? Walk a jog. Okay, walk, walk a, jog. a jog. Yes,、uh, June nineteen ninety one. Okay, that was I think run by the volunteers. Oh, and I remember it was led by Valerie Tay. Oh, okay. Yeah, she was the head volunteer, <laughs> and she was like you know. Get us organized. I mean, I was a star, but you know, she was the one who organized all the volunteers. And I remember the T-shirt we had was designed by Gobun Tik. <laughs> I wonder how many people had this. T- still have the T-shirt. So the collector's item. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyhow, so that was the very first. I think one of the first major、uh, fundraising project that we initiated, like by the volunteers. Right. Yeah. Were there also like golf tournaments? I I seem to recall there was like a golf tournament. Calligraphy donated by some local artists. 
Mr. Chen Chong Sui, Mr. Ho Ka Leong, who uh, was back then Senior Parliamentary Secretary, Information of the Arts. I think it might have been the Images Exhibition. So there was an exhibition, now I recall. There was an exhibition, Visual Arts Exhibition, with the artists donating their works, Ah. including Ho Ka Leong. You just mentioned Ho Ka Leong was one of them, I remember now. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was one one of the efforts that we have done. I think also the Chinese group, Xin Feng Xiang Sheng Xue Hui, they also did a show, and with the, with the ticket proceeds, donating to a substation. Mm. So they, this is also initiate, initiated by them. Was it a Chinese crosstalk? It's show? a Chinese crosstalk by Xin Feng Xiang Sheng Xue Hui, Huang Jia Qiang. Yang Shiping, their group. Mm, yeah. Okay. So the crosstalk group, in Chinese yes. called Xiangsheng. Xiangsheng, yes. Xiangsheng, yes. Yeah. yes. And that was, I think, also uh, more popular than, than compared to now. Crosstalk? Crosstalk. Yes. Yes. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. In 1991, it, it's also documented that the substation received a $1.1 million grant from the Guinness Breweries. Wow. How did yes. we find how did we find this? sponsor in Guinness breweries. I don't really know how we got them. But it's a very interesting, I always correct, wondered correct. about the theatre being called a Guinness, Guinness theatre. Theater. Yes, yes. Yeah. Because that was part of the, the term of sponsorship. This one must ask Tan Bing Luan eh, okay. how they come about. But I do know because Guinness theatre, you know Guinness is a liquor, yes, yes. alcohol. Yep. And then people always have this not so good link with alcohol. Right, right. So I remember there was some argument among the board, whether we think we should accept this sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I think in the end, Mr. Ko has convinced them uh, somehow that we will accept this sponsorship. So, so actually, I think the good thing is because they agree to not to interfere with the programming. Mm-hmm. They agree mm-hmm. with the programming direction. Mm-hmm. So the only term is we have to name the theatre as Guinness Theatre for 10 years. Right. The naming right was for 10 years, if I'm not wrong. Right. So it was called Guinness Theatre. And I was the one who managed the theatre bookings. <laughs> I'm sure that there were many that came forward. And in, in recognition of their contribution, it was renamed the Guinness Theatre. Actually, I think more than 10 years, if I seem to remember working yes, there. Yes, you're right. Yeah, because they, they were an take early down patron, a, right? Early yeah, I think they didn't take down a sign. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Never took down the sign. Yeah, but that probably paved the way actually for a more emerging sponsors. Interesting, you mentioned Tan Bing Luan. She was the GM back then. And she allowed donors to sponsor various areas of the substation, you know, such as its garden for $400,000, the dance studio for $150,000, or the seminar rooms, the smaller ones upstairs, $100,000 each over a 10-year period, which could be named after them. But apparently only Guinness stepped up to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And in, in being able to do this, they also agreed to having no say in the programs that they run. But this effort actually encouraged more enlightened sponsors in the arts who were more interested in showing off the arts rather than themselves. So that was interesting. Mr. Kuo Pao Kun was artistic director from 1990 to 1995. 1995, the substation re-registered as an independent non-profit company breaking its link back then with Practice Performing Arts Centre, which also managed the Practice Performing Arts School and Practice Theatre Ensemble. And following that, T. Sasitaran took over as the artistic director. He was artistic director from 1996 to 1999. Thereafter, a string of other artistic directors from 2000 to 2009, there was Audrey Wong and Li Wing Choi, 2010 to 2015, Noor Effendi Ibrahim, 
2015 to 2019, Alan Ui, and 2020, Raka Maitra and Wun Wei. In 2021, Raka Maitra continued after the building was returned to the National Arts Council. And at the end of 2021, the artistic director post was taken up by visual artist Izam Rahman. So in one of our earlier conversations of backlogs with Mr. Arun, he mentioned how Mr. Kuo Kun appreciated having him around because of his critical acumen as a manager. His organizational sensibility complemented Mr. Kuo's artistic sensibility. And Arun also emphasized the importance of an arts manager as being crucial to the survival of an arts company as much as the artist. Our conversation with Arun also discussed the release of Singapore's first publicly available cultural policy document, the report of the Advisory Council on Culture and the Arts, or ACA for short. This political identification of the significance of culture led to a focus on developing cultural talent in the early 1990s and the challenges of attracting and retaining cultural talent was also noted. So, Hanjuan, do you remember actively having to engage either the policymakers or external stakeholders in your time as an arts manager? During the time at Substation, I think I was really working more with the artists mm. than, and then the other external people because Bing Luan was the GM and mm. Mr. Kuo was the AD. So they, they were the people who, who talked to more, talked more to the policy people or the council people. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. And I have a quote here from an ST article called Thankless Jobs by Hannah Pandian in Straits yeah. Times. You remember Hannah Pandian? Yes, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> this is a 1993 article dated 5th of February and she wrote, Arts administrators in Singapore often find themselves doing odd jobs like making coffee and cleaning toilets. No wonder the turnover is so high. <laughs> yeah. What kind of turnover have you seen in your job as an arts manager in arts organisations? Have, have I mentioned this already? At the practice on some... Uh, the, uh, practice theater on Somme, there was a manager who came and he only stayed for about a week and then he left. Wow, one week. Yeah. <laughs> so it, there was that's why there was a few years practice theater uh, on Somme was having difficulty recruiting manager. Yeah. At the substation, I remember the admin person was also kind of high turnover. The admin person, the admin assistant, the, 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 these executive jobs. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. how to say. Supportive staff. Also high turnover. Right. Yeah. Would you say that the push factors are high workload and, and low pay? Were, were these yes, I must the main say, reasons? Because I think for us management, the salaries we all know is always lower than market rate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it may be decent enough for you to have a, a decent living. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing is, of course, overload of work. I won't say overload of work. It's really a lot of work. For example, I remember when I was a program executive at Substation, because there will always be program even at night, somebody have to stay behind to lock up. So the staff have to take turns. So we were on shift, I think, shift, to have to stay behind to lock up. So can you imagine in the Guinness Theatre, the show may end as late as 11 or 12 by the time they pack up and leave. But the next day you used to come come back and work at, I don't know, 10, 9 at uh, 10 or so. Mm. So, and then if you have events over the weekend. So that is why it's very easy for staff who work on 
programming or events to burn out quite easily. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. This is at the tail end. I have a quote here from Ms. Tan Bing Luan. She says, but how can you appreciate the arts when you're faxing or making coffee? Yeah. Um, <laughs> she actually gave up her job as a project coordinator in the oral history department to work for the substation for, for two years. I'm just also wondering whether or not one of the reasons is because we have a small cultural pool of talent. I have a quote here from the then Minister of Community Development, Mr. Wong Kan Sing, during the 1990 budget debate. He says, however much we do, the results will depend on the pool of talent we have in Singapore and the quality of our talent As our population is small, our talent pool for the arts is necessarily limited. Furthermore, those who were talented in the arts may not want to pursue an artistic career, preferring a more financially rewarding one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true. Partly because we have a very small population. That's why the talent pool is small. Talking about arts managers also, it's I always feel that arts manager is very tough because it's really more... Artist manager. Mm, artist you, manager. You manage the artist. Right. You know, you manage the artist, you measure actors, director, as well as designers. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Also, I feel that art is a unique product. It's really a unique product. So there are challenges to so-called market the product mm. or to even manage this product, these arts. So I guess that's why very few people will want to take up the kind of challenge to, to, do, to go into arts management. Mm. But I suppose now more and more, there are more and more people are aware of this profession, hopefully also more passion in this job. And also we have training courses on, on arts management. Mm. So hopefully we have better qualified arts managers, <laughs> not like us. We are actually on the job training. <laughs> on the job training, yeah. It's quite telling when I look at some of uh, the older quotes from articles. Mr. Taitong, who was then Theatre Works, then administrator, said, you're not going to be the limelight. There's no glorification, no adulation. You have to get your own satisfaction. Correct, yeah. yes. You, have, you really have to have that passion in arts mm. in order to go through all these hardships in, in, in your work. Mm. Let's talk about some of Kuo Kun's seminal works. In 1984, he wrote his first English play, The Coffin is Too Big for the Hole. It was first staged in Marine Parade Library on 16 November 1985. And this idea first emerged during preparations for a production at the 1984 Singapore Arts Festival. So several writers had been asked to contribute to a showcase of homegrown plays titled Bumboat. And of course, one of them was Mr. Kuo Kun. So the play he wrote eventually became Coffin is Too Big for the Hole. And during a a year 2000 interview with The Straits Times, he actually shared, it was written in about four to five hours. It it just flowed out. I still remember that experience. It was wonderful. Yeah. Bumboat's American Chinese director at that time, Zima, he tried but could not fit the piece into the framework of the production. And Mr. Kuo Pao Kun called it a blessing in disguise because it paved the way for a standalone production of The Coffin. That first draft was written in English, and as he reworked it, he then wrote a Chinese version as well, first performed by Zhou Wenxue. 
And actor Lim Kay Tong, who originated the role in English, had been involved in Bumboat and had a taste of an early draft of the coffin in Stubik for the Hole in rehearsal before it was actually removed from that showcase. And then Mr. Kuo Pao Kun approached him one year later for the lead role and that was how it was first staged at Marine Parade Library in 1985. Han Juan, have you ever had a chance to glimpse what were the behind-the-scenes process of rehearsing with Pao uh, Kun in the director's seat? Ah, yes, yes. Occasionally. Partly because I, I have to see the rehearsal was to understand the play so that I can write my press release <laughs> and my publicity copy. So I do watch them uh, once in a while. I mean, usually I would watch for every show. I would definitely watch the rehearsal. Yeah. I see. And then he had no parking on odd days in 1986. And this was, again, a first. It was first directed in English by uh, Kuo Pao Kun at the Shell Theatre on the 3rd of June in 1986. So you've seen his Mandarin work. You've seen his English work. You've seen his multilingual work, right? What's your personal favourite? Oh, wow. Okay. I think maybe Lao Jiu. Yeah. Mm. Lao Jiu is my favourite work. Mm, yeah. Because I think Lao Chou, it really reflects the society that we are facing, the, the issues that we are facing. For example, in the play, it talks about how to say that in English? The, you know, we always emphasize on the cream of the mm, society. Okay. Cream of the crop? Yeah, yeah. We always, yeah. Academic scholarship? Yes, yes. We always, I think in our society, always talk about mm-hmm. So in the play, Lao Jiu was supposed to, he was supposed to have a scholarship, remember, in yes, the play? Right. Yeah. But he gave up. He decided to go for his passion, which, which is puppetry. So I think in Singapore, zhu is one. The other thing is, we always go for what most people are doing, meaning uh, I, I want a safe life. I want a very stable job, stable income. And I got married, I got children. Try and tested route. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but here, Lao Jiu, he had a dream. And he decided to go against his family wishes hmm. to go for his dream. So I think that part is quite powerful to me. Mm. Yeah. That, that was why Lao Jiu was actually also very well received at the time. Okay, Because I think Singapore students all have the pressure <laughs> in study and things like that, right? So a lot of people, like, they do not have the courage to go for their dreams because they will have disagreement from their families and things like that, which is what Lao Jiu is facing. Sure. Because his family didn't agree to him, you know, because he has this great scholarship, but he declined the scholarship. He wanted to go for the for his art, his passion. He wanted to make puppets. He yeah, wanted to do puppet exactly. shows. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So I thought that was a powerful uh, team for me, actually, mm. Lao Jiu. And of course, the other thing is, the multi, again, it's multi, multidisciplinary. Sure. We have puppetry as well. We have the hand puppetry. Shadow puppetry. I remember we have Chinese percussion in, in music. Mm. Yes, because you had the you had the Chinese because musicians of the, because of the puppetry, the puppetry. show. Yeah, yeah, we need the musicians as well. Mm. So it was. I thought it was one of the best productions that Mr. Ko has produced, really, mm-hmm. and created a lot of impact. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just if we can walk down memory lane a little bit as well. What did you take away from working with him? He's considered the doyen of okay. Singapore theatre and Singapore Chinese theatre. Okay, I feel that he's a person with a big heart, okay? And he has this yishitongren. He treats everyone equal. Mm. In a way, you can say he's a person with a great humanity. And then I have this incident that I always remember when I was in school, working with a pra- practice for my art school. Remember I was telling you, I, I, was, I have the right receipts. Every 
term every month. Can't remember when the students pay the fees. Yeah. I have the right receipts. So, as you know, we are always short of manpower during weekends. There was one day I was the only person I think in the in the, in the office. I had the right receipts, but it was such a busy day. I was very busy. Mang bukuo lai. Okay, probably also selling shoes and <laughs> ballet gear at the same time. And then Bakun was so nice. He came to me and he asked me. I think he was the other one in the office like, at his own cubicle. And he walked to me and he asked me, Nishio Bang Mang Ma. Do you need help? Then I said, Okay, Nipang was Kai Sochi. Okay. You asked him to write the receipt? Yes. And then he like, he was Halangisha. Okay. A bit stunned. Is a it? bit stunned for a while, just a second or two. He said, Okay. <laughs> so, because I think I was busy with somebody else, maybe. Couldn't handle everyone at the same time. And true enough, he sat down and wrote a few receipts. For, helped me and wrote a few receipts. So, I wonder who are the, which, are the, uh, which parents have received the receipt signed by Ko Pao Kun. <laughs> Precious okay. now. So, he's such a person. Mm. And the other thing is, he really treat, as I mentioned, he treat everyone equal. So, no matter you are a stage crew, publicist, or, or he really treat everybody equal. Mm, mm. So I thought he he's really a great man. Mm. Yeah. Who would you say are some individuals that help you on your journey as an arts manager? Mr. Kuo Bakun influenced me quite a lot. Also, his wife, Miss uh, Madam Goli Kwan, because she was the principal of practice performing arts school. So I was also working quite closely with her. I think. Yeah, both of them influ- influenced me quite a lot to really be more giving, embracing. And also because you all probably already knew they really had a hard time, a tough life. So I really feel that no matter hardship you're going through, you really have to be positive and gather your own strength and carry on in your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the same way that uh, he helped you, I suppose he also admitted to his shortcomings, right? He he once said, I'm not a good planner. If I were, <laughs> we would never have gone into something like the substation. Every planner will say it cannot be done. It never left my mind that the substation could end any time before the thing was launched. We just went on knowing that the next day or the next week could be the last. Yeah. Yes. So in a way, it's this spirit of let's just try it first. Let's try. Yes, and then, exactly. Yeah, if it can't be done, then we'll find out. Yeah, let's just try because if you don't try, we don't know. Yes. Okay. I think that's the spirit sometimes we, when we were at practice. We just try. Wonderful. Yeah. The other thing about Mr. Kuo was that he really believed in the importance of arts education, not just to bring in income for theatre companies, but also it was important to grow and professionalise the ecosystem. I have a quote here that says, increased attention to the arts has also shown up more inadequacies. The priorities for national arts spending could be better placed. To compensate for neglecting of the arts for too long, a comprehensive national arts education scheme for the young and the adult population would ensure the rapid growth of a massive, well-informed audience. Very soon too, it would nurture a large pool of talents for professional selection, while at the tertiary level, this would ensure enough performing arts teachers who are produced to man the classrooms, well-researched critics to guide the public, 
and well-trained artists to boost the performing arts professions. This was made in a speech in the 1990s as well. So I think goes towards what you had suggested, that he, he was a man of vision, he had a big heart. And in some sense, would I be right to say that he was a bit of a mentor to the yes. arts managers of those times? Yes, yes. I think he's a mentor to not just arts managers, but a lot of artists. Mm. And we always have this word for his influence. We call we always say that we have been pokonized. <laughs> Have really? you heard? No, no? never. Okay, me, Heng Luan, we always say that we are a generation of uh, being Paukunized already. Oh. So we are influenced by Pao Kun, uh, mm. Mr. Kuo. Sorry, I keep on calling him Pao Kun. He's so close to me. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think that is why we have more arts groups after the initial years of the Chinese theatre, the practice theatre. We mentioned Drama Box, Toy Factory, mm-hmm. Finger Players. Mm. I think they are all influenced and right. inspired by Pao Kun. The, the, his spirit of pursuing your dreams and overcome all your hardships and yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Would you have any advice for um, up-and-coming arts managers? Find a reason to stay on a job. <laughs> Find a good reason. Whether it's for the money or for the arts or the, the, the AD that you admire. <laughs> mm-hmm. You must find a reason. I think for any job, you must find a reason that you think that is, this job is worth my while to stay on. So I suppose for arts managers, it's really the passion. I have to go back, still the passion for arts. Mm, mm. That you want to see arts being enjoyed by people, arts being promoted to more audiences, and then especially good and quality arts being produced and created. Yeah. Mm. And would you have any um, wishes for the Chinese theatre scene in Singapore? Oh, well, Okay. It's very difficult. Chinese because I think, first of all, I, I remember this. Why is Chinese theatre not so popular? Because of this stigma. Stigma, Chinese language is not as cool as English language. I think we are being affected by this stigma. So a lot of young people, they will think that, ah, oh, Chinese theatre, they will think it's China and it's like, not cool. Somehow, we have that in this society. Yeah. So that is why there's this challenge la, to promote Chinese show. Mm. Yeah. What can the arts manager do about it? Marketing, law, maybe do some marketing, repackaging. <laughs> Maybe this is True. I think we have to also look at uh, what are the demands or the interests of young people nowadays. Mm-hmm. What do they like to see? You still have to do shows that are relevant to the society or relevant to the young people. Mm-hmm. You have to create content that meet the demands or the interest of the people mm-hmm. at large, I think. yeah. Okay. Whether Chinese or English, I think, a language. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank Andra. you. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. You've just come to the end of another episode of Backlogs, an arts management podcast series. This episode concludes the theatre-focused episodes of the pilot series of Backlogs, where we spoke with arts managers who were pivotal to the development of the theatre scene. We heard first-hand experiences and learned from the stories of arts managers working in some of the emerging theatre companies. 
Gosulin and Clarice Ng of The Necessary Stage, Lucilla Teo of Theatre Works, and Wong Han Juan of The Theatre Practice and The Substation. We also heard from those in government agencies and other institutions who were just as crucial to the growth of the local theatre scene. Arun Mahilnan, who was deeply involved in the evolution of Singapore Arts Festival and the genesis of the National Arts Council, as well as Tisa Ho Ng, who was so integral to the many developments in cultural policy and the original brief for what would become the Esplanade. Those whom we managed to interview for this podcast series first came to work as arts managers through volunteering or started with projects before continuing into full-time positions in arts organisations or in companies championing the arts in Singapore. The conversations so far also highlighted how they persevered and stayed on because of their intrinsic passion for the arts. They were the so-called unsung heroes who toiled tirelessly behind the scenes, often on seemingly thankless jobs. Yet, tasks like raising funds, adjusting technical aspects for the stage, selling tickets or cleaning up rehearsal spaces are extremely integral to the development of a thriving ecosystem and eventual professionalization of arts management. We've also come to see now that the work of arts managers is interconnected and interdependent. In this 1980s focus, the individuals whom we interviewed had their paths crossed. For example, Tisa was a board member of The Necessary Stage when Sulin and Clarice were in the company. Arun was on the steering committee of the Singapore Arts Festival when Tisa was artistic coordinator at the 1990 edition. I myself first met Han Juan when we were both working at the radio station. We hope listening to these episodes has given you an opportunity to map out the dense interweaving of threads in the rich tapestry of arts management. There is still so much more to explore when it comes to arts management within the theatre scene. But from this point in the series, Charlene Shepherdson will take over as host for the subsequent episodes on the literary arts. If you'd like to learn more about any of the key events, people and institutions mentioned in this particular episode, head over to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G to find further information pertaining to each episode's content. You may find them under show notes on the respective pages for each episode. For more resources with regard to arts management in Singapore, head to the resources page on the website. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at backlogs.sg, which will be updated every time a new episode is released. Share your comments with us by tagging us at backlogs.sg or using the hashtag backlogs.sg. If you've enjoyed what you heard today and would like more, do support our fundraising efforts. We are raising funds to support the operational costs of manpower, equipment and resources in order to keep this podcast going. You may find the donation link on our website as well as our social media channels. This first podcast series is presented by Centre 42 and Singlet Station together with researchers Dr. Ho Su Fen and Dr. Cheryl Julia Lee. It is supported by the National Arts Council Singapore. Thank you for listening. <laughs>